Thank you all for tuning in to the AFT Construction Podcast today. This week on episode five, we're hosting Kirk Linehan. And Kirk is a real estate broker in Scottsdale. And he has a lot of sales experience working for Ping, Travis Matthews, as well as FootJoy. So we wanted to bring him on, talk about sales and how that can impact any business. So welcome to the AOT Construction Podcast. Today, we're super excited. We have Kirk Linehan with us. Welcome, Kirk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Kirk is a super uh, great guest of ours because he comes from a background uh, in the corporate world. He's worked 20 years at, in the sales and marketing uh, profession and has been just tremendously successful in different company he's worked with. And now he's one of the top realtors in town. So we wanted to bring him on to share some of that knowledge with you guys. So Kirk, thanks for joining us. And um, I want to kick this off. So, you know, help us understand you succeeded in all these different industries, different companies. Like what do you look at? You know, what's the key to that success? I think there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, I would say for me, what I've always leaned on is that I'm a people person and I understand people and I know how to read them. It doesn't matter what kind of sales you're in, whether you're selling construction, you're selling real estate, you're selling golf equipment. People buy from people, and I've always had the mantra and, and, and the ability to read somebody very quickly and understand how they want to be sold to, because everybody's different. Some people are high five, let's bro it out. Some people are super professional, like shake your hand, sir, how are you? And you've got to understand that person and sell to them. So that's so how do you decide for that, though? Like if you're meeting someone and I mean, how do you gauge that to know kind of their personality and how you can reach them? It's just something that I've always had inside me. I just have the ability to read somebody on the spot. Um, I wish I could translate that to like poker or something. <laughs> um, I obviously I don't play poker, but um, I just have the ability to understand and, and, and correlate and relate to people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds and races, all those things. Like it doesn't matter to me. I just had the ability to, to read them and be able to work with them how they like to be worked with. Because that that that's a that's a skill. Not everybody processes things the same. Not everybody, you know, handles situations the same. And so that's always been my biggest strength. And I think that's correlated and come with me to each position that I've been in. Um, and, uh, that's probably been the biggest thing. And I, then also I would say is I do what I say I'm going to do. And in today's world, I, that unfortunately is a rare thing. If I tell somebody I'm going to call them, I call them. If I yeah. tell them I'm going to email them, I email, whatever the case is, if there's follow-up that I have, I do it. And, and people appreciate it. And I just don't do it. I do it in a timely, professional, and thorough manner. So that way, even if you called me and said, you know, Kirk, I have a question. Hey, Brad, I don't have an answer for you right now, but I'm going to get it, and I'll get right back to you. And I do that. And it's unfortunate because all the positions that I've been in, when I talk to accounts and I talk to people that I work with, that's not the normal. You know, and... Um, that's really sad in today's society. Well, it is, and I think that's the biggest problem. I mean, you, you bring up communication, and I think any company and in any field, any industry, if you're not communicating or over-communicating and setting that expectation and following through, you know, that's where the issues happen. That's where the issues arise. And one thing that you touched upon, I want to revisit. So when we first met, it was through social media, right? We had, you know, followed each other on Instagram, then we had breakfast, and, and one thing that I've been taught in sales is building relationships of trust. You know, you have to find some common ground and then, you know, you can start building on that. And that's one thing I noticed that right away when I first met you, you know, you started talking about sports, you started talking about extracurricular activities and we kind of built this friendship. And so how, you know, how can someone refine that skill when you look at building a relationship of trust, even at a first appointment, um, 
What, do you have any secrets or insight on all the sales experience on how to build that? The first and foremost thing is listen. Listen to the person you're talking to. Because too many times salespeople just want to keep regurgitating information and talk, 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 talk. And there's an art in listening. You and I clicked because I listened to you and I listened to your background and your family and I realized you love sports. I love sports and you like basketball. I love basketball and all these things that we had in common. So I talk about those things because that makes a connection between us. But too many times as a salesperson, you don't sit back and listen to that customer's wants or their family or their history or whatever the case is. And so you have nothing to connect with. So I've always, in the sales world, I've always tried to find that person's hot button, that way I can connect to that person and leverage that, not only to be a better salesperson and sell to them, but to create a relationship of trust, like you say, because that's, that's key. Um, you know, I could tell you in my golf background, you know, I won a lot of awards and had great success, but that was because my customers trusted me because they knew that if I said I was going to do something, I was going to do it and I wasn't going to burn them. I always had their best interest at heart, but that's also because I got to know them. I knew who their family was, their kids, what their background was, what they loved outside of work. And I'd walk in and I would say, you know, Hey, how's Jonah doing today? And they'd look at me like, how do you remember that? But it's because I listen to them. So I would tell any young salesperson out there, before you just start spewing out information, listen. Listen to their wants, needs, desires, and that's going to get you so far in today's society. It's such great insight because, you know, as you've been successful in all these different companies and different industries, you've brought up three points today that we all need to apply. And this applies to me and my business and everybody else. You talk about uh, listening, being able to listen to the customer, right? Listen to them. You talk about communication. You know, doing what you say you're going to do, being honorable with that. And then you talked about, you know, building relationships of trust, you know, building that common ground, uh, you know. And so those are all huge components of everything we do in each and every business. So how has your role changed? You were at Ping, <laughs> super successful. For those of you that don't know Ping, Ping's, a, you know, golf, they're in the golf industry, you know, make golf clubs and um, very good golf clubs. You know, I used to have a Ping set myself. So um, tell us about that, you know, your role with Ping. So I, so I started with Ping in uh, uh, early 2004, April of 04. I was living in Salt Lake City. Um, Ping's obviously based in Phoenix. I had lived in Utah for 10, 11 years, and I was recruited by Ping. And, you know, it was interesting. I was So where were you? What were you doing before Ping? I was working for Sport Court. I was okay. a national sales manager for Sport Court. So I dealt with all the dealers. There's dealers in... Like the outdoor sports court, basketball, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. we're based in Utah. It was uh-huh. a Utah family-owned company. And they, the, the Kotler family who owned it was selling to a corporate company out of Texas. And I could see the writing on the wall. The corporate company, after I left, ran it into bankruptcy, actually. And now they're doing well again because it was bought out of bankruptcy. But I had been recruited by Pink for like a year. And so I just felt like it was the right time to make the move. And I went from making a lot of money in Utah to making nothing at Ping. I started at the bottom. Everyone went in and worked in customer service, and you had to work your way up. But I believed in myself. All my friends were like, you are crazy. What are you doing? But I'd always bet on myself. And so, I, But talk to us about that. I mean, not to interrupt you, but a lot of people have a hard time taking that step back, you know, to be patient, to move forward, right? So... I mean, that mindset to be able to willing to go back and start over. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you even get encouraged to do that? I just have an inner belief in myself, whether it's been sports or relationships or jobs. I've never failed. I mean, we've all had failures. Of course, you have setbacks. Everybody does. Anybody that tells you that they haven't, they're lying. But I've always ultimately won. 
and I just believed that I could make it work. So I just had an inner belief in myself. I took the leap of faith, and I came to came down to Ping in April of '04. Uh, started in customer service and quickly um, moved my way up to the head of customer service after about three or four months. And then uh, after about a year, I was told I was get, I was offered the sales rep position in Chicago. Oh, wow. uh, and that was actually the second fastest in the history of the company. Most people took four, five, ten years to get out. And so for me, it was just a little over a year. Uh, I moved to Chicago in December. Uh, so I had about a three or four, five-month window to go out there and uh, – transition because the rep was retiring in Chicago. So, you know, there was a lot of unhappy reps because I was getting one of the premier territories in the country as a rookie, but I took it over and quickly took tripled the territory size. I won rep of the year for Ping a couple years later. Um, so it was a great career. Ping's an awesome company. They treated me amazing. Um, but it was really just an inner belief in myself and moving from Utah to Phoenix and then willing to go from Phoenix to Chicago. I knew nobody when I went to Chicago. I didn't, I knew one person who was a friend of a friend and I just took a leap of faith and believed in myself that I was going to make it happen and and develop those relationships and whatnot. So it was a great experience. And how was that? So when you're working for Ping and you're in sales, so are you, um, retail, are you visiting with golf courses and and just golf course direct clubhouses? Uh, a little bit of both. So the primary focus was green grass, was the was the golf club, whether private or public golf facilities. But we did sell to private retailers, and then also some of the big box, you know, your Golfsmith, PJ Superstore, those kind of stores. But the focus was the green grass business. So, but how do you, as you know, as a salesperson, how do you um, uh, mold yourself, if you will, t- to be in front of different clientele? Because you're in front of all these different personalities, you know, different people are selling to, and I know we've touched upon this, but. How did you relate to each of these people to sell that product? Again, I think I'll go back to, I just have the ability to read that person and understand how they want to be sold to. Because everybody's different. You know, no two people are the same and they all want things different. Some of the accounts, um, they wanted super detailed information. Some of them didn't want any. You know, they just wanted the order done. So just understanding, reading those people, and then as the years go on, you know those people, they trust you, and you refine your approach to them based off of your history with them, right? So you know each time it gets a little bit easier because you know how they want to work. You know how they how they want to run their business. And ultimately, my goal was always to run their business, their shop from a ping standpoint. And then obviously, uh, you know, foot joint titleist and then Travis Matthew. But that was always my goal was to say, let me run your business for you. I know your ping business better than you do. I promise you. I knew every number that they'd sold, whether it was drivers, fair, was hybrid. I could tell them exactly what they had sold. And so um, I think bringing value that's it. to them. I mean, add value. Yeah, you're adding value or identifying their needs, their sales, you know, where you can help them and you're being that resource for them. Yeah, adding value, that you hit on it. That is like my mantra. Whatever we do, I tell my assistant, you know, Logan all the time, we add value. Mm-hmm. Don't ever do anything with a client or customer that you don't add value for them. Yeah, because in, in every industry, we're competing against other people and really the only separation is what value do you bring to them, That's right. right? Not just sales and not... What can you get from them, but what value can you right. get to them? And I found, it's funny, we've had um, subcontractors that have taken a different sales stance with us. They've come to me. I had one uh, subcontractor came to me and said, hey, Brad, you know, this is the first time we meet, but I actually have a project I think you'd be a great fit on. Can you come in and meet with the client, right? It was kind of a reverse sales. He wanted to start working for us as a GC, but he came to me with an opportunity, bringing value to us, mm-hmm. and it changed our relationship. And it just reminded me of, you know, you talking about value. So... You've you worked at Ping, 
you know, Foot Joy and Tyler. So then let's talk about Travis Matthews because mm-hmm. Travis Matthews, new company, mm-hmm. right? New brand, they're getting in the market. Like what enticed you to leave these big brands that you've built these relationships, you had a lot of opportunity, you've excelled quickly up the ladder. So what made that jump? That's an interesting question. And my answer today is different than it would have been when I made the jump. Um, so obviously I'd worked for Ping and I had five great years there. I was recruited by FootJoy to come over to them, originally in Chicago, and then I transferred to Los Angeles because I wanted to get back out west. And FootJoy just, they made me an offer I couldn't say no to. It was uh, an amazing opportunity at the right time with that company. Um, I always said when I worked for Ping, there was only one company that I would go to work for, and that would be a Cushnet, which at the time owned Titles and FootJoy. So I made that move. That was fantastic. I had six great years. I was with FootJoy for five. I won sales rep of the year with FootJoy, which is probably my greatest achievement uh, up until in the golf world. It was my greatest achievement um, for sure. So was your sales role different between the two no, companies? No, same. Selling a little different mm-hmm. product, but but the same concept. It's the same thing. Your the golf business is, was shrinking at about three percent a year from a from from a consumable standpoint. So you were trying to basically, in a shrinking market, steal more pie from the next cust- the next company, the next competitor. That's it. You, you there wasn't more dollars being spent from from a uh, account a standpoint. Perspective, yeah. You had to steal more pie. So that was the ultimate objective. So with FootJoy and Title, I was with FootJoy for five years, and then I went to the Title side, which was the sister company. Uh, I was kind of on a track to maybe get into management with uh, you know a regional position type thing. And I had never sold a golf ball. Uh, that was the one piece in the golf industry that I hadn't sold. So going to Titleist, the biggest ball brand in the business, of course, it was great knowledge. But And I went up the, uh, to Northern California for a year. And, and it was a great opportunity, but I also... Understood pretty quickly that I had that I had that territory down pat in six months because I had done it so many times I understood how to make a territory run and grow and I was really felt like I was stuck. I, I just I wasn't challenged. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. Mm-hmm. I just I thought that the move from titles to footjoy would re-energize me and it didn't. So the Travis Matthew thing came about uh, an account that I actually sold to when I was with FootJoy, he was a, a manager of three different golf courses. He was a GM. He had went to Travis Matthew, and he had been so recruiting. he had me. left as a GM of yeah. these golf courses to go work for Travis. Yeah, yeah. He was like an operations manager, mm-hmm. and Travis Matthew was at the time was looking for like a new national sales manager to, to manage the the sales reps. You know, from a Greengrass the the, the mm-hmm. account standpoint, and um, I hadn't done that in the golf business. Previous to that, I had managed a lot of people, but in the golf business, I was just managing myself. Yeah. And so it was a new challenge. Um, and it was another leap of faith because it was a smaller company, although they were doing very well. I mean, they were doing very well, um, but they were privately owned, owned by you know an investor and then some, some other people. Um, and so it was a little bit riskier. Um, but the gentleman who had been recruiting me, um, I knew very well and I trusted him. And so I decided to make the leap because I wanted a new challenge. I loved the golf business, and I wanted a new challenge. So I made the move. They were based in Huntington. I, we stayed up in Sacramento for about six months, and then they wanted me to transfer down to Southern California, so we moved to Orange County. And um, it was explosive growth. I mean, I was in charge. I hired 
four or five. Ryan Thorne was one of the guys that you know. Ryan, mutual friend of ours, mutual yeah. friend, uh, hired him. Rock star, uh, and I and I was just my charge was obviously to grow the business, but build the sales force too. Bring in rock stars because the product was so phenomenal, but they didn't have the right pieces in place to sell it to the local green grass accounts. They just didn't. They had some good reps, but it was pretty weak overall. And self admittedly, they they would tell they would have told you that. So that was really my goal. How do you build an infrastructure when you're coming into a new company that has a great product, but they just don't have, not not so much the branding, but they don't have the bandwidth, yeah. right? So how did you, you know, sniper approach different salespeople? What were you looking for as you started to build that? I leveraged my relationships. I had the the luck of being in Chicago and L.A. and Northern California, three of the largest markets in the golf industry. So I knew a lot of people. And I knew a lot of people that if I didn't know someone in that market, I knew somebody that did. So I reached out and leveraged my relationships to at least get introductions to these people. And um, some of them I knew, like Ryan and a few other guys I hired, and then some of them that I didn't know. But my name and reputation, along with the person that I knew, it got me at least a meeting with them. And that gave me the ability to see if they were a fit for us and if, if we were a fit for them too. Because it has to go both ways. It can't just be a fit one way. It has to be a fit both ways. So that's really how. I just with my 13, 14 years at that point, I just leveraged my relationships and I'm a pretty good sales guy. So <laughs> when I got to sit down in front of these people, I, I pitched them a pretty good story. And, and you know what? And all the people that I hired, I think with the exception of one are still there. Um, you know, I obviously left three and a half years ago and they're still there doing great. And so that makes me really happy that, you know, they've, that the opportunity that I pitched them, it's been reality for them and then they're having great success with it. So going back to that, you know, as we're looking at sales and you're developing these relationships and you're starting to, you know, we always hear the term, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, right? And, you know, you're a great example of that as you've built Travis Matthews up. So what would, what advice would you give to a young salesman or entrepreneur, someone, um, you know that they're good at sales, they're good at meeting with people. I mean, what advice would you give to them, you know, if they're young in their career? Mm-hmm. There's a couple things. Depending on the career that they're in, the, you know, the the vertical of uh, with sales channel, whether it's, you know, real estate or you're a sales rep for a company or you're selling pool equipment, whatever it is, is find a really good mentor, especially when you're young and green in the, in the area because a lot of people think that they can just go out and make it happen, but they don't have any contacts, they don't have any experience, and it is who you know. And so when I was young and as a sales rep, there was a couple reps that I looked up to and then I just picked their brain. Every sales meeting, I was sitting by them. I was asking them questions. I was trying to absorb that information from them. And then everybody works a little different, but I would take things that they're doing and implement that into my life, how I would use them. You tweak it a little bit, but the fundamentals stay the same. So that's first and foremost is find a mentor. You know, if you're talking real estate, which is I'm in now, and and I get calls from new uh, licensees all the time asking, "How how have you grown your business so fast? What should I do? Work on a team. Find an awesome team, a mentor, and just be an absolute sponge. Soak up as much information as you can, you know, until you feel like, and maybe you don't ever want to go out on your own, but, but do that at the beginning. The second thing is, I tell, and this is the most fundamental, is if you're a sales rep in a lot of these companies, you have a lot of autonomy, okay? You have to have the discipline to get out of bed every day, leave the house, and grind. Because when you do have that autonomy, a lot of sales reps, I'll go do that tomorrow. I'll go see customers tomorrow. Well, you know what? As a competitor, if that's what you're doing, I'm going to eat you for lunch because I'm grinding all the time, okay? 
And it's like that in any industry. You know, if you're not out there grinding in front of your customers, whether it's through text, phone call, email, social media, face-to-face, whatever that avenue is, because every, every customer likes to be dealt with from a different platform. If you're not doing that, I am. And, I'm gonna, and I told this to a new licensee. He came to me. He was, he was working for, going to work for another a competitive agent, but a friend of mine, a guy I've done some deals with, very good agent, and he was going to work for him. And we were doing a deal together, and this, he had brought this new agent along, and this new agent says to me, he goes, you know, what advice could you give me? And he was an agent, but he was also working a part-time job. And I said to him, I said, buddy, listen, you got to go out there and go all in, because if you don't, I'll eat you for lunch, because I'm grinding 24-7, okay? And you can't compete being a part-time rep. So, um, and those are two good points, because you brought up two things. You know, young in my career, I'd been taught chase experience, not money. Right, and you alluded to that. Find a good mentor, chase experience, because the money will come. You know, as you, you know, build that work ethic, build those relationships. You know, that'll all come at some point. The important part is in the beginning, chase that experience, get that mentorship, and then number two, you talked about discipline, because I think the hardest thing in sales, and most people don't realize, that's unique to any other industry, is once whatever your cycle is, if it's a calendar year, once it hits January first, you start over. Right? You have new goals you have to hit. You have a new book. <laughs> Every you have new month. Quotas. And, and, you know, it's broken down by month. And so, you know, you can't just, you know, everyone thinks it's so much easier looking on the other side, but they don't realize to be successful in any field, it's hard work. Like you have to have a drive. You have to, you know, even if you're on the top, you got anyone coming after you. So you have to be more disciplined. I want to touch on something you said because it really rings true in my life is, you know, you said you chase success, not the money. And my mantra was always when I was with Ping and then with, with FootJoy is I wanted to win sales rep of the year. That was my ultimate goal every single year because I knew if I did that, I crushed it for my clients. If I won sales rep of the year, that means my clients were over the moon happy. And guess what comes with that? The financial rewards. It's the same thing with real estate. I tell you know all the agents I work with and I tell obviously Logan who works with me, we don't chase a commission check. Because if you chase commission checks, you're not going to put your customer first, okay? We chase success. We chase them being ultimately happy because guess what? If they're happy, then we make a commission check. And then they send us to five of their, cl- their friends, and then we make money off of them. So, so how, do you, how do you break that down? I mean, for anyone in any field that's listening, how do you break apart success so that it's not just about the money, but it's about you know, the main goal there. I mean, how would you recommend doing that? Well, for real estate, it is having a happy client, winning for them, getting them a good deal on the purchase or top dollar when they sell, handling everything from the negotiations, the the binzer, which is the inspection repair requests, you know, working with the title company and the appraiser and all the different things. I try to take as much off my client's plate as possible. I do everything that I can. There's some things we can't do, of course. I can't set up the utilities for them and those kind of things. But I give them all the numbers and avenues to do that. So we try to make it as seamless and easy for our clients as possible so that they basically have just a great transaction. That's success. Success for me is getting a phone call from a client two weeks after and said, I just want to thank you because we are so happy with our new home and you made it so easy. Like that's what moves me. It's not getting the commission check. Yes, we all have to make money to live and we don't work for free. But at the end of the day, if that client's happy, they're going to tell 5, 10, 15 people over time. They're going to come back to you. I'm starting to do fourth and fifth transactions with clients that I met three years ago because they know how I'm going to work for them. That's how you build true success. It's not by cashing a commission check. You know, anybody can cash a commission check. 
but can you have sustained repeat clients for years and years to come? That's true success. It is, and it's hard to do. It's hard to have repeat clients, but repeat clients are a testament of the service you're providing, the value you're bringing. I mean, you talk about value. You know, we've kind of evolved in, in your timeline here as you've gotten into realty, which we'll revisit. But, you know, I, you know I've noticed where you where you have clients and you're working on closings and you're working on, you know, as you're in escrow with these clients and you'll reach out, hey, Brad, do you have an electrical contractor? Do you have a towel guy? Do you have a pool guy? You know, all these little things because you on your own, you know, you don't have to do this, but you're bringing value. You're helping the clients with either sell their home or a future purchase. So, you know, talk to us about what took you. Now, you're in the corporate world. You've been super successful in sales. You've built these different um, territories. You've built sales forces, you know, great reputation. So now you make the huge jump to completely change industries. Yeah. So talk to us about why you got into Well, like I said earlier, the reason, you know, uh, that I made the move is a different answer now than then. When I went to Travis Matthew, it was because I wanted a new challenge to build a sales force. I had not done that. That's the one piece to the puzzle that I hadn't done in the golf business. But now that I look back, it ultimately was I was yearning to run my own business, to be an entrepreneur. And I felt like that growing a sales force would feel like that. And as good as Travis Matthew was for some things, I quickly learned that I was ready to that was the final straw that pushed me over the top to go out on my own. I mean, I had great jobs and did very well financially with these big companies. And I went from Travis Matthew into real estate making zero. Zero. There's no salary. There's no money coming in. But again, I believed in myself. I All knew commission. that I could, 100% commission. I knew that I could make it happen. I just believed in myself. And so it was really the entrepreneurial spirit inside me, I think. Um, my wife, Emily, um, who I have so much respect for. She was an entrepreneur. She owns a business um, when I met her and that we've grown together, but she kept pushing me too. She's like, you've succeeded in everything you've done. This will be no different. Like, I believe in you. You need to do this because I talked about it for a couple years. So that was really the, the, stru- the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. It, it was time for me to do my own thing. And so we were living in Orange County and I have my license in California as well as Arizona. And uh, we were deciding where we were going to do real estate full time. So we took a trip out to Arizona because ultimately I, I, I've always loved Arizona from the time I moved here and I, I ultimately wanted to come back. I didn't know how she'd like the desert. She had lived in California her whole life. She loved it. So we decided to move out here and that was middle of 2016. Um, so, and it was the best decision we ever made. But it was uh, really just a belief in myself and wanting to chase the entrepreneur in me. I, that's, I had never done that. I'd always worked for someone else, and they were awesome jobs. I look back at all those people, the people I've met and the, the companies, they molded me into who I am today, and I'm so thankful for that. But being becoming an entrepreneur was the best thing from a business standpoint that I've ever done. Yeah, and then now here you are, new territory, your new enterprise, if you will, doing your entrepreneurship as a realtor. You're building your book of business here in Arizona as you relocate. So quickly, one of the exciting things you're doing, which I know of, is you work with a lot of the Phoenix Suns, right? So I you do. represent a lot of the sports players. So how, again, going back to this dialogue here, here you are, you know, new to this territory. How do you get involved with the Suns? And then now how do you work with all of them? Yeah. So the Suns connection, um, a very good friend of mine who lives here in Arizona, uh, I've been friends with him since I moved here. We met through a mutual friend. And it was just one of those guys that you know we clicked. He works in the real estate business, in the title business, and um, but he 
had a connection to a few of the Suns players. He knew a couple of them, um, and I, I had had a chance to meet them in 2004 and five when I lived here, and kind of started a small relationship at that point, right? And then when I moved back, my friend, who's still been one of my best friends for the last 15 years, um, he is still kept in touch with those guys and then some of the new players. And so um, I got introductions to the new players that way through him. And uh, again, just cultivated it, cultivated those relationships, and then built a really strong relationship with, there's a girl that is the liaison with the Suns, and she and I hit it off. But, you know, I had to prove myself to them. And I think with the players, the, the biggest thing is, is I treat them just like a normal person. I was going to ask that because do you find a difference, rep- you know, representing a professional athlete as opposed to, you know, just a normal business person? Um, you know what? I don't treat it any different, but I think a lot of people would because the, the fact of the matter is, is these guys are a prisoner of their own success. They make a lot of money. They're very visible. And everybody's trying to get something from them. Everybody wants an autograph or money or tickets, and I'm just not like that. I've never asked one of these guys for tickets, and they always say to me all the time, like, buddy, anytime you want. And I said, listen, if I ask you for tickets because I really need it, like, I'm not going to be that guy. When we go to dinner, I pay for it. I don't expect them to pay. And they just want to be treated normal. And I think that having played high-level sports and competitive sports my whole life, I get that. And I just treat them like a normal person. And I think they really respect that. And then ultimately, it comes back to doing a really good job for them. And that's a very small network. So when you do a great job for them, they tell them all, all their yeah. buddies. And so now they call me. Um, and, and, and that means a lot to me because they have their choice. They could go anywhere they want. Even if I get referred to them through this liaison, they still have a choice. They definitely don't have to use me. But they'll ask one or two or five of the players like, and they're like, hey, you know, how was Kirk? And I get good recommendations. So, And occasionally you get good shoes too, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> they have given me some shoes, yeah. Uh, Dragon Bender, thank you very much. He's in Milwaukee now, but a very good friend of mine, very close. Surprised me with a bunch of Adidas shoes one day for all the stuff I'd done for him, which was very nice. Um, yeah, but again, as you mentioned, it's not expected, right? I mean, that's something they did on their own, but you're not treating them any different, even a professional athlete. Right. You're just, you're here to work, you're here to bring them value. You know, as they're traveling and dealing with contracts and, you know, training and everything else, like you're a local um, person, as you mentioned, right, that you'll need someone to maybe take their trash out and schedule that or service, you know, their house or set something up. That's right. For these guys, even more so than your normal client, because they are gone so much. They're on the road so much, and they have a team of people. They've got financial advisor. They've got a lawyer. They've got their personal manager. So there's a lot of people that you have to bring into the fold and reach out. And so I always just try to be the central hub and the main pivot for that. And um, I I just, for these guys, because they are gone, you, you handle more of it for them. And that's fine. That's my job. My job is to make it as easy for them as I would for any other client. Give them that white glove service. Give them the white glove service. That's what it's about. Add value to them Mm -hmm. so that it makes it easy and they have a great experience. And that's, you know, whether it is reaching out to you for recommendations for for certain repair people or tile people or hardwood people um, or a designer, you know, type thing. You know, we've talked about that. So, um, yeah, it's it's just trying to add value for them. Um, And then obviously not take advantage of the relationship. I respect those guys, the players. I work with a lot of the coaches. They're awesome people, and, I, and I'm lucky enough to call them friends now. Which is, which is amazing. So talk to us about, 
you know, how do you find more business? I mean, one of the most difficult things for any sales position is drumming up new work. You know, as soon as you have a closing, you got to find another one. So what are you using any different marketing tools or how do you increase your book of business? Well, um, I'm probably a little different than most. I don't pay, I don't spend any money on advertising. I do hire a social media gal. She runs my social media because, quite frankly, I can barely make a post Instagram. <laughs> I'm not like the magic man Brad over here. I wish I were. Um, and, you know, I read a book one time that says, you know, be smart enough to know what you're not good at and hire somebody to do it. Yeah. I'm not good at that stuff. And so I pay someone to do that. And it's so... You're specialized. You know what you're good at. Yeah. You need to focus on. That's right. So um, for me, 100% of my business is referral at this point, whether it's through uh, the Suns organization, past clients, my, uh, the lender. I work with one lender solely. I send them all the business I can and they send me deals back to. We reciprocate with each other. Uh, you've sent me people, people that I, you know just know because they know what kind of service I'm going to uh, provide. And that's kept Logan and I, I mean, we'll close 55 to 60 deals this year. Um, I'm on the verge of hiring a second person uh, just because we are running out of bandwidth, uh, he and I, and I, and I don't want our white glove, our level of service to drop. So we're looking at bringing on a second person. Um, but it's all through referral. Um, and, and, and honestly, that's how I've grown my business is just repeat clients um, my referral sources that I work with. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I've thought about advertising in magazines. I've thought about doing like, you know, some of the, the, the internet companies where you can buy leads and things mm-hmm. like that. And lead generation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, you use social media a lot. I mean, I've, one thing I noticed about you, Kirk, even though you outsource that to someone who's in house, you know, you're not running it yourself, but you're still on there. Like yeah. you're still commenting and you're still engaging and, yeah. and part of it. So how has social media affected your business? It, it has helped. And I have cultivated some business from Instagram or Facebook for sure. A very small part of my business, but I have, you know, made clients through that. Um, and a few of the clients have now become repeat clients. So obviously, you know, social media is a huge part of the today and it's going to be even bigger two years, five years, 10 years from now, whatever that platform, if Instagram's gone, it's something else. There's going to be some avenue of social media. I respect that's, you know, you and I met through social media and and quite honestly, you have one of the best social media accounts I've ever seen. I mean, you're so active and engaged and that's awesome. And like, I look at, you know, aspire for my account to be like yours. And I, I mean that because you have so much engagement activity and I know I'm sure some of your business comes from social media, which is amazing. Um, so we've got to continue to do a better job on that for sure. More videos and engagement stuff that people like. Um, I'm not good at it. I'm trying. No, you spend a lot of time in front of the camera, which is good. So like people feel like they know you. It's funny. I was actually at a networking event and, um, and someone approached me and they're like, Oh, you know, Kirk, right? Like, cause you're, you know, Kirk, we see him out there and he's, you know, very active as, you know, realtor and broker, which is pretty rare. So kudos to you because it's, it's tough to get in front of the camera. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, I'm trying to do better. Um, and, and I'll well, you're continue. on LinkedIn too. So on LinkedIn, you're pretty active, which I think you're one of the few realtors I see yeah. on LinkedIn. Yeah. You know, which is a platform that's a huge network for you. Um, have you seen any progress on LinkedIn with your activity there? Not from a sales standpoint, not as far as a production standpoint where I've gotten clients, 
But from a connection standpoint, yes. From a standpoint of meeting people in different areas, having referrals, you know, in different in, in different locations, different industries. Also, stuff you know, like I met someone that I'm building my website. That I had a new website built, and I met them through LinkedIn. So LinkedIn's been powerful, I would say, for my connections in the industry. Uh, not as much, like I said, for business that's pr- been been production, but um, but you never know. And, and and I think yeah, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's really the three things that that we focus on. Um, and and again, uh, you just never know. You have to be out and visible because you know I just actually was reached out to yesterday by someone through Instagram that had seen me and that wants to is moving here to Phoenix and wants to you know purchase a home. So you never know when that person if if we go silent and dormant we're not active. Yeah. They're going to be reaching out. Yeah, you don't know who's watching or and so if you're not active there's another realtor that will be in their face and they're going to be you know reach out to them versus me so got to stay active on it. Yeah, and I think most people, you know, as we divert a little bit here, get into more of the realty side. Most people as they look at realty, they think it's super easy, right? That it's just hey, you find someone, you make an offer, they accept it and you go to closing. But what are some of the challenges you deal with as a realtor, you know, that most most of us would not understand? Yeah. Well, the first thing is is every person knows 10 realtors. That's just a fact. Yeah. Like, I, I guarantee you could think right now about all the realtors that you know. And not just from it's business. super competitive industry. Super competitive. Yeah. It's ultra competitive. And there's a business. lot of people that do it half-heartedly or yeah. on the side or as a second. For sure. And then main source of income. So you're dealing with all different enterprises. Tens and tens of thousands in Arizona agents. I think it's like 77,000 licensed lot. agents in Arizona. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's a very competitive business. Um, everyone knows a bunch of realtors. And so I always say to Logan, if we're not contacting our clients, another realtor is. So I'm very diligent on following up with past clients and not just following up with them for business, just checking in. Hey man, saw your pet Pat's one last weekend. God, you know, the tough again, you know, building that relationship with trust. As just just keeping at, you know, keeping in contact with them. Cause I do care about what's going on in their lives outside of real estate. Like you form relationships with these clients and they become friends. You know, they become people you have into your house and you go to games with and you play golf with. And I love that stuff, you know? Um, so that's the first thing is like, you know, the second thing I tell young realtors all the time is like, like kind of, we touched about it before you got to be willing to leave the house and grind. And when I tell young realtors some of the things you're going to have to do to be successful, they look at you like deer in the headlights, like, really? I need to do that. They expect they're going to get licensed and their phone's just going to start ringing and they're going to start making sales. But it's tough. I mean, when you're competing against all those agents in, in a very, you know, it's a big market, but it's a small market. It's very competitive. And quite honestly, about 100 of us do 95% of the volume. Mm-hmm. So you're competing with people that are doing 30, 40, 50, $100 million a year in sales. It's tough, especially as a part-time agent. If you're work, you know, working a day job and trying to do real estate on nights and the weekends, you got no shot. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to it's be really successful. Tough. So what are some of the challenges you deal with as you, you know, find someone and let's say you're representing a buyer and you go into escrow? What are some of the challenges that happen in that escrow period mm-hmm. that you're dealing with? Well, the biggest challenge right now is even before escrow is the lack of inventory that's out there. You know, we're at about 14,000 listings. I didn't check this morning, but 
roughly at about 14,000 listings, which is significantly down from last year. What was um, it at last year, roughly? Uh, like 18,000. Wow. So okay. it's down. So there's not a ton of inventory. Not a ton of inventory. And then some of the inventory that's out there, people more or less don't want, or it's not a fit, or right part yeah. of town. I mean, there's a lot of variables there. Yeah. So like, for example, we have three buyers right now that are ready and willing to buy, and we just haven't been able to find the right fit for them. And I tell clients all the time, I don't want you to buy just to buy. I want you to buy because you love the place. This is like the biggest commitment and purchase you're going to make in your financial history to that point. And so I, I want them to love where they live. And that's that's my mantra is love where you live because it isn't important. So that's the biggest challenge we're facing just getting into escrow. Like to put in perspective, I had four listings that we just made active. One sold in three days. Another one was gone in eight days. So their quality products, we priced them right, they're gone. They're gone because there's just so there's boring. more buyers. You know, Maricopa County is the fastest growing county in the country. Phoenix is fastest growing city. So Arizona, I believe, is the fastest growing state. Mm-hmm. So we have tons of people coming here. And it's for good jobs. You know, we have really good jobs here. You know, we're one of the largest uh, states in the uh, country for job growth. So People are coming with money to spend. You know, they come from California, and it's like they're getting stuff on sale here, yeah. right? So it's they a lot cheaper. it's a lot cheaper. So they want to buy, but it's just it's tough. So that's the first thing. When so you, real quick though, before we talk about a couple some of the other issues, so when you're dealing with a client, how do you have the hard conversation? Because one of the tough things as a realtor is, let's say you're representing a buyer, and you've looked like you see on HGTV, right? You've looked on at like 25 properties, and Inventory is one aspect of it that there may not be the right fit, but if there are homes that are same fit, but their expectations are unrealistic, maybe what they want to spend to what they can get and what their expectations mm-hmm. are. I mean, how do you have that hard conversation with that client yep. to keep them um, engaged? Engaged. That's a great question because that happens a lot. So they don't just waste all your time. Yeah, right? yeah. You have to be willing. Uh, well, let me back up. First of all, you establish that trust with that client and that relationship because you're working hard for them, you're adding value, um, and you have to have that kind of base established with them, right? And then you've got to be able to look them in the eye and have those tough conversations, and they're not fun. They're not fun for the client, and they're not fun for the realtor, for sure, but they have to happen because a lot of times, what I do with clients generally is when we first meet and start talking about what they're looking for, I have them give me in order one to five the most important things in what they're looking for in their new home. Whether that's school, they want a pool, it could be square footage, it could be whatever it is, right? I have them list the five things. Because, and there's a reason that I do that. Because this situation happens a lot where they're going out, we're looking, we've seen some great options, but their expectations are so unrealistic that none of them are fit. I go back to that list and I say, guys, listen. Here's the things that you told me were important. This one checks four of those five. So tell me why it isn't a fit. And I put them on the spot because I want to hear what they say. And ultimately, it's because their expectations are unrealistic. That's my gateway to talk to them and be like, listen, your expectation is going to have to change, whether it's price or it's location or it's, you know, whatever it may be, right? So I always use this funny joke, you know, I'll I'll have people that, you know, they want to spend, let's say, 500,000 just for an easy number. And they want 5,000 square feet, they want a pool, and they want to be in Paradise Valley. And I'm like, listen, 
if you want to spend five, you know, five thousand or five hundred thousand dollars and want five thousand square feet, I'll put you in Wickenburg and get you a mansion. <laughs> but you're in Wickenburg. Yeah. And I try to get my point across to them because you expectations have to be in line with what the market's dictating. Okay. And right now we're in a market that it's not just a seller's market. There are deals for a buyer if you have flexibility too, but it is a little bit of a seller's market because of the lack of inventory. If you price it correctly, it'll sell quick. So when you have a deal in escrow, though, and inventory is one thing, but what makes deals fall apart? Well, the first and foremost is the inspection. Okay, So generally, when you get into escrow, a client, a buyer, has 10 days, um, 10 calendar days, inspection period. So day one, so if we get into contract on a Sunday, day one is Monday. Okay, a lot of a lot of agents think day one is Sunday when you get into it's not. It's the next day. That's day one. They have ten days. Okay, so that's probably the biggest deal killer is inspections. Now, luckily, I pride myself. Very few deals that I've ever had have fallen through because of inspections. Because I always feel there's a buyer that wants to buy and there's a seller that wants to sell. And whether you're representing either side, you work together to try to get it done. There's a reason they wrote an offer on that property and there's a reason the seller is selling. So let's find a meeting of the minds and get it done. Now, has their deals fallen apart because of that? Because of inspection? Sure. I'm not going to sit here and say that they haven't because there has been some very interesting situations, not only from me being a listing agent, but also as a buyer's agent where we've had to walk from properties. Um, and is it typically because if uh, the inspector finds something that's a huge concern or is it more where the the seller doesn't want to fix everything on the bins report and mm-hmm. on the inspection? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Like to give you one example, I had a client and we were looking, we found a house that he liked and we did an inspection and it was full of mold. Now we couldn't see it on the surface, but the inspector found it. I mean, when I say, and it was really bad, and so I told him, I said, you got to walk from this. Like, it is not worth the headache you're going to have. So so that type of situation. But also, yes, we I've had buyers and sellers unrealistic on what should be done or should not be done to a, to a Binzer. Or the price associated with it. Correct. So, but again... I usually feel like there's a there can be a middle ground found, and most of the time there is. Most of the time we get that through, as long as there's no deal killers, anything majorly crazy uh, in the in the bins in the inspection report. Generally, we can find a common ground and get it closed. So that's the that's the first biggest hurdle that you go to when you're in escrow. The second thing is an appraisal. Okay, and the reason I say that is it's just an interesting market. Prices aren't skyrocketing like they were in 04, 05, 06. But prices are rising and inventory is less. So people are coming in and, you know, at times are wanting to overpay for a property because they're in a multiple offer situation and they go up above asking price or whatever. And you can run into some appraisal issues because appraisers in today's market are held much more accountable than they were in 15 the, years ago. 15 yeah. years ago. Because now, you know, before a lender would call up his appraiser and say, hey, we need an appraisal at XY property. Well, the appraiser is probably going to get it done for his buddy, right? Well, now today, the appraisers are in just a it's it's like in a um, you know a, a dialer. It just goes to the next one in the line. Rotated market. You don't know who's on the other end. It's yeah. completely random. And sometimes it's super frustrating if you know or or challenging because they could be using different comps and they're not really comps and they're undervaluing the property. And so then now it's a challenge. The buyer has to make either the seller 
has to make a concession right and get that yep. down, or the buyer has to bring more cash to the table yep. to offset that appraisal. Right. And again, I've had some where we've met in the middle. I've had some where the buyers come all the way up because they wanted the property so bad and the seller's not going to budge. And I've had some where the sellers had to come down. Now, I've only had, you know, this year, maybe one or two appraisals that haven't been where we needed them to be. But that's a real challenge when, when they're not. Because no buyer wants to come in with an extra 20K out of their pocket, right. and no seller wants to reduce the price 20K. Right. So there's creative things you do to get done, whether it's, you know, again, for me, it's not about the commission. So there's been a lot of times where I've kicked in chunks of my commission to get the deal done because that's winning for my client. That's amazing. That's getting them through the finish line. And again, yeah, does it hit, does it hit your pocketbook? It does, but ultimately it doesn't because that client appreciates it and they'll come back or they refer people. So you lose the battle to win the war. Yeah. But a lot of agents that are stuck on each deal, each commission check, they won't do that. And I've had agents flat out say, absolutely not. I'm not kicking in a dime of my commission. Okay, well, that's your choice. I'm just trying to get the deal done. So um, again, but that's having a bigger picture view, understanding yeah, it's not about the bottom line on a daily basis, right. but it's the overall picture. It's the overall win for the client. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else that's, that would hold up an escrow? Um, those are really the three major things, the inspection, the actual appraisal, and then the negotiation of the appraisal if we have to. And well, hopefully a client that's not going to go make a lot of purchases on the side or at least get in all their paperwork yeah, and documentation. Yeah, and, knock on wood, I haven't had one of my buyers or a listing to where that's happened, where we get to the finish line and they can't qualify. Uh, for their loan. You know, lenders are doing a really good job up front, pre-qualifying people. And if I'm a listing agent, before we accept an offer, we're vetting that buyer. We call up their loan officer. We grill them pretty hard to make sure that they're well-qualified, good credit scores, have the assets for the down payment, all those things. Because, you know, it's easy for someone just to hand your pre-qual and say, oh, they're good to go. Well, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. I want to hear it from that lender because then they've got skin in the game. Hey, you told me they were good. Yeah. Okay. So so we've had very good luck with that, but we do our due diligence up front too. Which is really smart. So you got to vet. I, mean, I think in an industry, you have to vet the client, vet the, you know, each and every project. There is, not to cut you off, but there is one other interesting thing that people don't think about that can throw a monkey wrench in deals, and that's a solar lease. Solar leases are very interesting, and we're actually, I'm actually dealing with one right now in one of my listings because it's mind-blowing, but some people can qualify for a $700,000 house and can't qualify for the solar lease. And don't tell me how that works. I have no idea, but these solar companies are very interesting, and they're a challenge. They're a challenge. So is that... I mean, the challenge you're having is them turning ownership over to the, yeah. from the existing client right. to the new So if it's a solar buyer. lease, the new buyer has to apply with the solar company to be able to take over the lease. Okay, So let's say most solars are going to be a 20 or a 30-year lease. So let's say it's a 20-year lease and five of the years are already finished. That client's got to be willing and able to assume that 15-year lease at the same terms that the seller had. And that can be a challenge sometimes, which is, again, very interesting because this person's well-qualified to buy a $700,000 house, but the solar company's giving them a hard time. So obviously, if it's own solar, it's no problem. You know, that just transfers over with, with the sale. But lease solar can be tricky. You can throw a wrench in there. Yeah, can throw a wrench in there. So sometimes. what's next for you, Kirk? What's next for me? That's a great question. Um, just to continue to do the best job I can for our clients. I mean, real estate, I have found my calling for sure. Like, 
Again, the golf industry was amazing. The people I met, the contacts, the friends, the experience, like I would not have traded a second for it because it's put me where I am today for sure. Um, and But real estate is definitely what I was put on this earth to do. Um, I think I'm good at it um, because I work hard for my client and I, I love the art of the deal. The beautiful thing about real estate is every transaction is different. The buyer and seller are different. The home is different. Every aspect, there's no two deals that will ever be the same. And I love that because I love to win. I always say, tell to Logan, we win for our client, win for our client, whatever that is. And so every situation is different. So it just keeps you so engaged in every deal. It never gets monotonous because there's never two things that are the same. So continue to do real estate, obviously going to hire another person. Um, there's some things that I want to achieve in real estate that bringing on a second person will give me, free me up some time. Every person only has so much bandwidth and I'm a big, like you are, you know, I respect how much of a family guy you are. I try to be the same way. You have to have work-life balance. You can't just work, work, work. You'll burn out. Yeah. So that's important to me. Work I just hard, got play hard. work hard, play hard. You know, I have two sons that I'm very active with. Um, they're older and kind of carving their own past, but still very involved with them. And obviously, just got married. And Emily and I own another business outside of real estate that she kind of runs, and I just help her with the back end. But uh, there's some things there that I want to do. So. Yeah, just continue to sell real estate, build my portfolio of happy clients, try to win for them as much as we can, and um, you know, just do what we do, you know, and that's we love it. I love it, and um, I couldn't well, imagine doing anything else. And you're known in the so where can our uh, listeners find you? Um, so at, on Instagram uh, at Linehan Real Estate, um, on Facebook you can find me under Kirk Linehan or Kirk Linehan Real Estate. Same thing on LinkedIn. Uh, my phone number is 480-486-7706. Look at that. That's some dedication right there. I always... willing to give it out. For sure. If <laughs> Listen, I always say this. If you call, text, or email me and I don't pick up because I'm with the client, like right away. I will get back to you within yeah. minutes as soon as I can because... I know you're looking for an answer or you need, in today's society, especially we're cons- we, we are consumer hogs. We want to consume everything we can. We want it right away. So I understand that and I promise I'll get back to you as quickly as I can. Well, thanks, Kirk. We really appreciate, appreciate you joining us on the AFT Construction Podcast and sharing your knowledge on business and entrepreneurship and, of course, sales. I want to give a shout out to, to Brad and his team at AFT. Uh, he is so humble. He's not saying this, but he's actually building a house for us. And we referred him several clients, and they are hands down the best construction team in the industry. Brad does what he says he's going to do. Just like I fight for my clients, he fights for you. So if you're thinking about building a house, you are crazy not to use AFT. So reach out to them at AFT Construction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in as we spoke with Kirk Linehan about sales and how that can better our business. We have a bonus episode for episode six coming later this week. Mike with ECS Homes out of New Jersey, they build high-end custom homes. They also do a little commercial multifamily. He paid us a visit at AFT and we were able to sneak away and record a little podcast, so definitely stay tuned.